Welcome to the Exposing Mold Podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I am here with my better half, Alicia Swamy. And today we have the pleasure to interview Dr. Heider. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. How are you feeling today? Are you tired, run down, sore, achy, and foggy? Have you been dealing with a chronic issue that you can't seem to shake? Been to doctor after doctor? Had lots of tests, tried many medications, vitamins, and supplements, and still feel awful? You, like many others, could be suffering from mycotoxin poisoning. Mycotoxins are called the great masqueraders of the 21st century because they present as so many different diseases and are often misdiagnosed by many clinicians who treat the symptoms rather than the cause. We have good news. There is hope. Visit MyMycoLab.com. That's M-Y-M-Y-C-O-L-A-B.com and order your test kit today. Let's rule out mycotoxins and help you on the road to better health. My MycoLab, making a difference by knowing the difference. Dr. Heider, you posted a tweet that got quite a bit of attention, and I will just summarize the tweet and then allow you to speak on it. 4,000 COVID patients treated, five hospitalized, three medical board complaints, multiple pharmacy complaints, and one lawyer retained. First of all, thank you for treating COVID patients because I know a lot of doctors don't do treatment and just kind of wait until hospitalization needs to happen. But please share this experience that led to you making this tweet. Sure. So I had just joined Twitter a few weeks before that, and uh, and then this was the first tweet that went viral, I think. I mean, the last I checked, it had 20,000 retweets and like millions of views. And, and then a few weeks after that, they kicked me off for good, you know, with no warning. So I'm in Twitter heaven now with everyone else who has been kicked off recently. So at that point in time, I just wanted to kind of make the point, you know, of my experience. And, you know, it's actually probably a lot more than 4,000. 4,000 acute patients treated is kind of like the floor. And the important thing is that, you know, there were only five hospitalizations, no deaths, and everyone ended up recovering. All those 4,000 patients ended up recovering. And that track record has continued. I haven't had any more hospitalizations and acute patients after that. There's probably closer to 5,000 now who have been acute patients that were treated. So, you know, that, that's just one experience. But And that was using ivermectin and fluvoxamine specifically. Before I started use adding fluvoxamine, the first, I think just the first 20 patients I treated with ivermectin alone. And so I was very early on the fluvoxamine bandwagon, you know, the FLCCC added fluvoxamine a few months after I started, probably three or four months after I started using it. And one of the reasons they added it to their protocol was because of my experience with it. 
And so my experience was that out of those first 20 patients I've treated for acute COVID with only ivermectin, one of them was hospitalized. And maybe that was just, you know, bad luck or whatever. She was kind of elderly. But for me, it was quite remarkable. And because after that, I added fluvoxamine to ivermectin. And then the next like few hundred patients, I think even the next thousand patients, there were no hospitalizations after that. So, so it was really kind of alarming. I was like shocked and amazed, like, wow, this really made a difference. Again, that might've just been chance, you know, my one experience, but that, you know, that's part of how doctors do medicine. You know, you have this personal experience and it makes an impression on you. Later on, I did have a few hospitalizations here and there, and not everyone tolerates fluvoxamine. Sometimes you have to use fluoxetine. You know, the other parts of the tweet that are really kind of important in terms of just the experience that doctors are having, and one of the reasons that so few people are doing this is all the pushback that we're getting. So when I had made that tweet, I had had one medical board complaint, and they didn't tell me who it was. I kind of suspected it might have been a family member because the pharmacist actually dispensed the medication and the patient had no problem with it. So um, all I could think of that it might have been someone in their family who didn't like what they were doing or what I was doing. And I had to retain a lawyer to go through that. You know, it was quite expensive. It took a lot of my time. I mean, you know, you have to review the whole record and you have to spend time writing back to them. And I mean, it could have been way, way worse. Like they dismissed it, you know, after I had spent like 16 hours of my time, like formulating this response and doing everything that they asked and sending them all the records they wanted. And, but if it had gone on to the next stages, it could have taken like years or, you know, more to go through the entire system of their, um, the way they process it. And I might've had to appear before the board. And so, you know, it's like, it's, it's stressful, you know, because your license is at risk. And it's not just that one state. If your license gets a ding in one state, you have to, like, it gets reported to every state you're licensed in. Um, if you get suspended, basically every state you're licensed in will suspend you. And you're basically at the mercy of random medical board members. You don't know who's going to review your complaint, what they think about ivermectin or fluvoxamine, you know, if, if they're out to get people who are doing this or not, you know, you don't know if they're going to be fair or not. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the wild west. I mean, there's just no, no proper due process. It feels like, right. You just feel like you're, you're in this unfair system and you don't know who you're going to get reviewing this complaint and what's going to happen. And, and so, you know, there's just that stress involved and, you know, you can imagine if, if you really wanted to throw a wrench in somebody's, you know, life and career, you just go around and like make, you know, fraud, you know, just frivolous medical board complaints, you know, left and right. And I don't think that's what's happening, but I mean, I think these are like, I, I think they are frivolous, but they are coming from, I mean, it's not like a coordinated attack or anything. There's not a, I don't feel like there's a conspiracy because if, if there were, it would be much worse. You know, I'm licensed in like 40 states, so there would be a lot more coming, coming at me than was. But anyway, that, that one complaint was dropped. Um, since then, since I made that tweet, another complaint came through another medical board, which was from a pharmacist actually, complaining about, you know, the fact that I had uh, this website up. And, and that, that one was dropped pretty easily. I mean, they didn't, I didn't have to spend a lot of time on it. I didn't have to get a lawyer. The board was really kind of laid back and cool about it. This was in South Dakota and South Dakota has had a pretty laid back response to the pandemic. So I think their board kind of mirrors that kind of laid back approach. So I'm happy for that. And then the third one just came through and this one is even worse, I think. than So the first one was in Texas and the complaint was that he, that I had not given proper consent, which, you know, I don't know how they knew that. I mean, I had, so there were two things you didn't give proper consent to the patient. You didn't explain the risks or whatever. And you used 
a dangerous drug or dangerous dose or something like that, right? For something inappropriately. And then this is basically the same complaint that's coming in in Arizona now. In Arizona, there, there's no like patient involved. There's no, they don't even know if I've treated any of their patients in Arizona. All they have is like, it's kind of strange. They, they wouldn't tell me, you know, in complete detail, everything that happened, but they basically said some pathology board or some group of pathologists had found my name listed on a website as a doctor who's willing to prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and then complained to the board saying this, this doctor lists Arizona as one of his licensed states and he's prescribing ivermectin fluoxamine or ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And, and this is like a third party website. I have nothing to do with this website, right? Like, I don't know. Somebody, you know, gave them my information and put my name up there. So they don't even know if I'm actually doing this or not. And, and so the board or in their message to me said that what we're investigating is the fact that you're prescribing this and what we think that it violates is again, the informed consent part of doing medicine. And, you know, we're wondering, you know, maybe you're not keeping proper records. Maybe you're just like sending out prescriptions online without doing a proper intake or whatever, and without taking in consent and, and also using dangerous drugs and, you know, outside of a clinical trial or whatever. And I mean, it's as if no one treats anything with off-label medications. I mean, it's just very, very bizarre to me that a medical board would be sending me something like this. So, so that's the story of the complaints. And then, you know, outside of those like specific complaints, we've had a lot of pushback from pharmacists, you know, some pharmacists just refused outright to prescribe it. Some of them would send us, like, like I had this fax from a pharmacist warning me that like, if you don't stop sending me, you know, prescriptions, I'm going to report you to, you know, this medical board and this other medical board where I know that you're licensed. And, and so, you know, I had this one experience where a patient was acutely ill and, and pretty sick. And I wanted to get her a medication like as fast as possible. And the pharmacist is like negotiating with me on the dose. They're like, I don't feel comfortable with this high dose. And maybe you would be willing to prescribe her half the dose, you know, and, you know, basically like you got this feeling that they were, you know, as if they were practicing medicine, right? Like taking your decision-making capacity out of your hands and, and, you know, pre-COVID pharmacists would often have an issue with your prescription and they would get in touch with you and you would, you know, talk it through and you explain to them your reasoning right? Like why you made the prescription. And, and sometimes they would have a legitimate, you know, problem with your prescription and you would actually change it. Like maybe you had, you know, forgotten to run a drug interaction check or something. And there was like a legitimate reason to change it or drop it or like not give it to the patient. And, and so there was this, you know, camaraderie with pharmacists where physicians would take their feedback. And if it was valid, they would change the prescription or, you know, not give the prescription. If a physician was like, truly convinced that, yes, this prescription should be given. And these are the reasons, right? Like, here's the data, here's the research, right? Like here, I'm going to send you the research for your information. You know, you can look it up. I mean, I've done that multiple times before COVID and, and the pharmacist would review it and be like, yeah, sure. It seems to make sense. You know, I'm, I'll go ahead and give it. But with ivermectin, it's, that has never happened with a pharmacist, right? Like they're not even willing to look at the research that I send them. It's become very political and, you know, everyone's just so afraid of stepping outside the bounds of, you know, acceptable um, practice, you know, and I think the main problem is that what happened with hydroxychloroquine, I mean, it was demonized, you know, this like devil drug. And, you know, as part of this whole political thing where like anything that Trump likes, we're going to hate, you know, <laughs> anything that Trump says we should do, we're going to do the exact opposite. And so that, that was one issue in the mainstream media. 
And then there was, you know, this kind of behind the scenes concerted effort, basically to kind of fraudulently disprove hydroxychloroquine's efficacy and paint it as like a dangerous drug. And there were like literally fraudulent studies published on hydroxychloroquine that ended up, you know, shifting the narrative against hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, the the weight of the data is still, you know, in favor of hydroxychloroquine, but now it's like gotten to the point where it's just impossible to get anyone to like listen to you if you say that, you know, I think hydroxychloroquine is effective and safe for COVID-19. I mean, they just think that you're a crazy nut job if you say that. And they just, uh, they won't even listen. I mean, it's not quite as bad as, uh, I mean, ivermectin hasn't gotten to that point yet because there haven't been any studies that have really shown any damage from ivermectin. It's really hard to like harm people with ivermectin. Whereas with hydroxychloroquine, they were able to like overdose people, you know, in England and, and actually probably kill them from toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine. So just really badly run studies that were designed to fail on hydroxychloroquine. And, and that, you know, thankfully is very difficult to do with ivermectin. So now, you know, people are quite opposed to ivermectin and there seems to be a concerted effort, you know, against it. The FDA is tweeting about, you know, horse drugs and stuff and warning people against it. There is this shift against ivermectin. And now actually it's, it's easier to get probably hydroxychloroquine. You know, the pharmacists aren't like watching out for it, like making sure that you're prescribing it for the right thing anymore. So I've actually found that you can usually send hydroxychloroquine to a patient's, you know, hometown pharmacy, even if it's a nationwide retail chain and, and they, are, they don't even ask you like, why are you prescribing it now? Whereas in the past they would, you know, call you up and be like suspicious because the dosing was obviously for COVID. But with ivermectin, what we ended up doing because all these pharmacists were reporting us and many, many, I mean, like a vast majority had started just refusing to fill the prescriptions. We, we just hunted down like scores of pharmacies all around the country for every state that I'm licensed in, which is like more than 40 that were, you know, friendly to ivermectin, willing to prescribe it. And the other thing that we did, like the prices started becoming super expensive for ivermectin. People were paying like 20 plus dollars a pill or per dose. And for many states, we've found pharmacies that still have cheaper supplies from like pre-pandemic or like older supplies that have been around for a while before the prices became so expensive. And, and they're able to prescribe it for like a dollar or two dollars per dose. So we do have pharmacies that where patients don't have to pay like a thousand bucks for a three month, you know, supply of ivermectin prevention. The, the one thing that I didn't mention in that tweet, which is, I think, maybe even more important than the treatment, you know, the results of treatment is the, the results that I've seen with prevention. I mean, with prevention, there have been like probably one in a thousand patients who, in my experience, were on ivermectin for a few weeks, who then went on to catch COVID-19 while on ivermectin. And in the beginning, we used to give it, you know, every week, and then we went to every, you know, twice a week. And, and now we're on twice a week dosing of ivermectin. And still, it's just extremely rare for me to see somebody. It's, it's more common now for people to have breakthrough infections, because I think, you know, the virulence is getting higher. So with Delta, Delta was when I first saw a breakthrough infection with somebody who was on ivermectin, but it's still, it's just extremely rare. And, you know, it's not, certainly not a study, you know, it's just my one physician's experience. And, you know, there's all kinds of confounding factors. You know, these patients are often very, very careful and at risk of exposure. I have a lot of elderly patients who stay home and maybe just go out grocery shopping or something once in a while. So 
certainly if you're a very high risk, you know, there's a greater chance of a breakthrough infection if you're a doctor or a nurse, although I've had some of them too, and, and they haven't had breakthrough infections when they were on ivermectin. So I've had a mix, but the, the prophylaxis with ivermectin has been very, very successful in my experience. And then the, the other thing that I'm doing that I tweeted about in other tweets is, is long COVID treatment. And that's harder to treat. You know, the, it's, it's, it's a tougher nut to crack than prevention and acute treatment. But we do have tremendous success. And like, you know, the first patient that I treated for long COVID was a young guy who came to me and it basically had typical symptoms of anxiety and, and bodily symptoms of anxiety, right? Like he would have chest pain and shortness of breath and it would come and go. And he had had it for months and he had been to a bunch of doctors and they all told him, you know, it's anxiety. And so the reason I didn't jump straight to long COVID with him was because he didn't have any positive tests for COVID. And so he had had what appeared to be like a, you know, flu-like syndrome, but it didn't have like typical loss of taste and smell. So he had been tested a little bit late and then he had gotten antibody tests and everything was negative. Right. So there was no like proof that he had had COVID-19. And so initially I was just like, yeah, you know what, this sounds like anxiety. Maybe, you know, you need to do some stuff for anxiety. You know, I don't like prescribing medications for anxiety, but I was telling him, you know, do breathing exercises and, you know, do some, do yoga or something, you know, change your diet and try to relax and whatever. But then he was like, you know, Hey doc, is it possible that it was COVID? Like, even though everything was negative. And so, you know, I, I, I thought about it for a second. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. You test initially, you tested it late. So it could have been negative. And then obviously, you know, antibody tests are sometimes false negative, you know, maybe you had false negative antibody tests. So, so yeah, sure. Maybe you did have COVID. So he was like, you know, I, I just want to try ivermectin and, uh, you know, and so the nice thing about ivermectin is it's such a safe drug. It's like literally one of the safest drugs in the pharmacopoeia in, in the history of medicine. It's hard to find a drug that's safer than ivermectin. I mean, it's safer than drugs that you don't think twice about taking. It's safer than Tylenol. It's safer than ibuprofen. You know, it's safer than essentially every over-the-counter drug that we have. You know, it's safe, safer than antihistamines, you know, it's safer than Benadryl. So the side effect profile is just super, super safe and just super benign. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and there's any suspicion that what they have could be long COVID, you know, I feel comfortable saying, okay, we can give it a shot. We can give it a try and see what happens, you know, and I'm not worried that they're going to have, you know, any, any kind of negative reaction to it. So, so in that case, he was really the most remarkable recovery that I've seen so far. And he was the first one, I think, that I had treated for long COVID. I mean, he was better within days. He was basically back to normal within a couple of days of starting ivermectin. I mean, it was just incredible. After three weeks or so, his symptoms started to come back and we had to repeat a few, like a five-day course of ivermectin. And since then, he's been completely fine. So there are these just remarkable recoveries where like people have severe symptoms that they just can't tolerate, they can't work or whatever. You know, I had this one patient who came to me with like such severe ringing in the ears, he couldn't sleep even, you know, it was like 10 out of 10, like just all the time, constant, he couldn't work, he couldn't sleep. He was like really worried because he had heard about some famous case of somebody in Texas who had killed themselves because of this ringing in the ears. And, and this was actually after a vaccine. So post-vaccine side effects are a lot like long COVID. I think they, they may actually be a little bit easier to treat than typical long COVID from a COVID infection, but they're the cause of, you know, of it is essentially the same, which is spike protein left in your body and your, your body's not really able to get rid of it without, without some help. But, but that guy with the ringing in the ears, you know, his ringing went down from like a 10 out of 10, like a, to a three out of 10 within like a couple of weeks of starting ivermectin and, and maybe fluvoxamine. Uh, I don't remember exactly what we tried for him, but 
There's probably ivermectin and fluvoxamine both. And so, so long COVID again, you know, it's, it's harder to treat and it takes longer. It can sometimes take, you know, months to really get rid of it completely. And sometimes you have to try other drugs and you have to go through this trial and error process with long COVID. This is the surviving mold podcast. So just, I've had a, one remarkable case of symptoms that were very similar to long COVID, but you know, I think the patient had had COVID-19, but she'd always had these symptoms. She had, she had mold toxicity. She lived in a moldy house. She had taped off the section that was supposed to be fixed and, you know, she didn't have money to move. And she, you know, she knew all the, what everyone tells you, you know, you, you got to get out of there you got to get rid of, you know, away from the mold. That's like the first step. She was just like, you know, doc, I can't do it. I, I just am not able to leave this house. And so I put her on ivermectin. It was a pretty high dose. It was like a double dose daily. And, and she stayed on it for a couple of months. And, and the remarkable thing was all her symptoms went away completely while on ivermectin. And I'd never heard of anything or seen anything like that. You know, my dad suffered from mold toxicity. You know, I've done a little bit of research. I, I don't really focus on mold treatment, but, you know, I've looked into it and I understand, you know, a little bit about it. And, um, and I know that <laughs> the first step is get away from the mold. And I, I really, I was telling her, you know, I, I don't think you're going to feel better while you're in that house. You know, it's just, I was warning her, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to do much while you're there, but just, you know, I was just shocked, you know, zero symptoms, you know, and they would come back. If she stopped taking ivermectin, they would come back. And if she started again, they would go away within like days, just go to zero. So that's uh, one really remarkable experience. And it kind of points to the fact that we think that the pathology of mold toxicity and, and some other diseases like chronic Lyme disease, that the immune pathology of them in the body is very similar to long COVID. So we're dealing with, you know, in chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalitis, all these things are, are kind of interlinked and maybe just different aspects of the exact same syndrome in the body. So it's, it's really like a remarkable new discovery, I think in the treatment of these kind of immune pathologies or like post infectious syndromes, you know, perhaps you could call them or chronic infectious syndromes where the body's immune system is just chronically inflamed and not able to deal with this pathogen or the remnants of a pathogen or whatever it is. And so ivermectin and some of these other medications are quite, quite effective in treating those things. I've treated a couple of people who have chronic Lyme symptoms and they've also come back to me and told me that their symptoms just went away couple of times people with like uh, other chronic inflammatory diseases would say that being on ivermectin as prevention just, you know, cured up their symptoms. For example, some of the like rheumatoid arthritis, I've had some people come and tell me that, that their arthritis basically disappeared. And, and then sometimes you'll have people who didn't really have a diagnosis, but they would start ivermectin twice a week for prevention and they just feel better than they ever have in their life. Right. Like, so they, they probably had some kind of chronic inflammation going on that, you know, no one had really picked up. And, and it just made patients feel better. So it's really nice to hear stories like that. And, you know, the great, you know, there's always a silver lining to, to anything terrible that happens, you know, so the silver lining to war, you know, war is terrible, but, you know, the advances that you make during wartime in medicine are often, you know, great leaps forward that would never have occurred without it. So the, the same thing is, I think, happening with COVID that we've realized, many, many doctors have realized for the first time that viral infections and post-viral syndromes are treatable and very oftentimes easily treatable. And, you know, we had all gone through med school, like literally generations of us had gone through med school and it had been pounded into us that viral infections are essentially untreatable aside from a couple of notable exceptions, you know, and, and 
and the ones that are treatable, like supposedly treatable, you know, like the flu, you have Tamiflu. I mean, when you really look into it, it's, it's not really, it doesn't really work that well. But, you know, I've had patients take ivermectin for things that weren't COVID for like a cold, you know, or, or a flu and, or just some random bug, you know, we're not sure what it is. They just tested negative for everything and, and found that it worked, you know, for those things. So, so antiviral drugs are there and they are quite effective and they're, you know, just sitting there, they've been there for, you know, decades and we just didn't know it. Um, and now we do. And so we have companies like Incel DX that started off focusing on long COVID and they're planning to branch out into chronic fatigue syndrome and mold toxicity and Lyme disease and these other things and start studying those from this with the same approach that they've been using for, for COVID, which is basically to what, what they did. This is Dr. Bruce Patterson's group. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but what they did is they got few hundred patients who had long COVID and then they, they tested their blood for all these immune markers. And then they screened it with like AI and machine intelligence. And they came up with like a pattern that they see in everyone who has long COVID so that now they can diagnose it based on this uh, set of like 15 different immune markers, elevations and depressions of different immune markers. So first they started treating long COVID. Then they started taking patients with uh, vaccine side effects, COVID vaccine side effects. And I, you know, the next stage, I think, will be to branch out into these other syndromes that doctors like myself have been seeing success with using ivermectin and fluvoxamine and these other drugs that we use for, for long COVID. Well, that's a fascinating concept. They're going to look into the similarities between long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome and mold illness. Can I ask where you learned about uh, mold illness from? So I, let's see, I started getting interested a few years ago in alternative medicine. I took a course with Chris Kresser in California who does functional medicine. And I attended a few conferences of the Institute for Functional Medicine around the country here in the US. And, and then my, my father went through a functional medicine kind of workup, pretty expensive, long functional medicine workup. And he was diagnosed with mold toxicity and Lyme and chronic Lyme disease. So I started looking into it at that point in time a few years ago. So I looked at, you know, Richie Shoemaker's protocols and it appeared really complicated and I never had a chance to really dive into it and really do a lot of research. I think I ordered his book, but I just never had a chance to really go through it in detail. But, but that, was, that was where I got exposed to it for the first time with my father. You know, we went through mold remediation in, in the house that they were living in at the time. And, you know, we, we did all those swab tests from Mycometrics and then they were looking for other houses to buy. And we were going around swabbing all these houses with the Mycometrics stuff. So that was the experience that I had. And, and then, so ever since I learned about it, you know, anytime a patient would have like mysterious symptoms and would come to me, I would always, you know, it would always be in the back of my mind, like, Hey, do you live in a moldy house? You know, has, have you considered this as a possibility? It's one of those things that unfortunately aren't taught really in med, it literally not taught at all in med school. Like not even like, you know, like nutrition, we get hardly anything, right? But mold toxicity, we get zero. We, we just don't get anything. Have you ever considered the possibility that mold illness is the same as chronic fatigue syndrome? So I think certainly it, so any, any kind of chronic pathology is probably multifactorial. So I think in some people it is mold toxicity for sure. Like chronic fatigue syndrome is mold toxicity. That is the cause of it, or, you know, and, and there is no other cause. But other people may have a different pathology, right? Like you could have chronic Lyme disease and, and you do everything, you know, you run all the mold tests, you, you check the house, you do everything, and there's no evidence at all of mold exposure or toxicity, right? 
and, and you do have evidence of Lyme disease or you have evidence of, you know, COVID-19. So I don't know, I, again, I'm not an expert, but my, my suspicion is that there are multiple roads, right. That lead to one diagnosis. It depends on the person, it depends on their genetic predisposition. I mean, you guys may know more than this. I mean, you have a podcast. Oftentimes I'll come across patients who are more of an expert in their disease than I am because they've had it for 20 years and they've spent 20 years looking into it. So I would be open to this suggestion and learning more about it. But, but on the other hand, you know, when patients, when, when you do focus so much in your life on one illness, right? Like for example, multoxis, you've become an expert on it. It's, uh, I think it's easy and just, it's part of human nature. You know, when you have the hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So when, when you're really focused on one issue, it, you, you, you're, you tend to like, you know, explain everything in the world through that one lens. So it's certainly, it's a possibility that people have multitoxicity and all the tests, you know, aren't able to pick it up. You know, that's one of the, that's one of the big drawbacks of Western medicine, really, that if we can't find evidence of it, we think it doesn't exist. Right. So, so testing isn't always perfect. We may not have a test to show you what your problem is. So somebody could come to me and they could have multitoxicity and all the tests show that they don't have it. You know, I mean, there's mold everywhere, right? Like, you know, like there's always going to be mold. Some, some amount of mold exposure is going to be there for anyone, basically. I mean, unless you're living in a bubble, essentially every house is going to have some mold spores in it. So could somebody be, you know, remarkably sensitive to mold spores? Yes. And perhaps all the tests that we know to run um, come back negative. So yeah, I think theoretically it's possible that, you know, all chronic fatigue syndrome is mold toxicity. But again, there's a lot of other roads that may lead to chronic fatigue syndrome, like, you know, Lyme disease, post-infectious syndromes, post-flu, post-COVID. So what, what do you think? Well, actually, I got majorly obsessed with this issue because I was selected as the first patient prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome. Hmm. So I essentially started this syndrome. And when I was asked to undertake this project, I refused to do so because the doctors were not looking to mold toxicity. And in Dr. Shoemaker's books, I thought, well, this would be a fantastic opportunity because as a prototype for a syndrome, when doctors and researchers come to investigate the syndrome, I can tell them about the mold and they can put the mold together with the syndrome and help solve this mystery. And I find it fascinating that in all these years, 35 years, Dr. Shoemaker was the only one who put the pieces of the puzzle together. Right. And even though he put this in his books, it didn't really translate into any doctors coming back to do any further investigation and find out why there's, there's a connection between mold toxicity and this famous syndrome. Yeah. You know, I, I think you have to look at maybe the history and really dig into it to understand why that is, you know, like I, I really don't know. And I, maybe it's because, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons that explain why certain things get explained by somebody and then nobody else picks them up. I mean, maybe it's just like bad networking or I, I don't know, you know, honestly, I just don't know like why, why everyone discounted what he found and what he published. I mean, I'm assuming he must've published papers on this too. And I mean, maybe he just wasn't part of the old boys club. I, I don't know. You know, it's just bizarre to me. I, I totally, you know, I share here like consternation and confusion. I mean, what, what is going on in medicine when you have people, you know, really do a lot of research in an area and find something that no one else has ever found. And then everyone just ignores them. I, I don't, I don't understand it. I really don't. 
you, you'd have to look into the specifics of his, you know, his life and his career, but, you know, I, it is bizarre and it's, uh, you know, it's really something that I wish could change. And, and, you know, whenever you find something that you can't explain like this, it's easily explainable if you understand all the incentives, right? So that's the only way you can understand what human beings do is what they're incentivized to do. And for whatever reason, the incentives are not aligned. You know, the monetary incentives are not aligned in the modern world with health and healing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. In fact, the incentives to keep chronic fatigue syndrome as an open question so that it is available for every person who has a theory completely outweighs the idea of doing a thorough scientific investigation, going back in the history and finding out how and why precisely the syndrome was coined. You know, like sometimes it almost seems as though the establishment just doesn't want to ask questions that they don't want answers to, right? Like the insurance industry, you know, would be, you know, turned on its head if we suddenly discovered that millions of people around the country had to have their homes completely, you know, renovated or destroyed and, you know, built from scratch, or we had to have these people moved. So there's like, there's billions, maybe trillions of dollars at stake with some of these things, admitting them, admitting what's actually going on. You know, if tomorrow we woke up and everyone admitted that chronic fatigue or mold toxicity was something that we had to address and, and we accepted everything that Dr. Shoemaker had published, like imagine what would have to happen. Insurance companies, like just homeowners insurance would be on the hook for getting these people out of those homes and into homes where they're not going to be sick. And then there's just, you know, there's never really a strong incentive for pharmaceutical companies to solve anything, right? Like they just want to string you along for the rest of your life, right? They want to find something and they're going to put their efforts and their research dollars into things that don't really solve or cure anything, but require you to take something for the rest of your life, right? So, so they're happy minimizing your symptoms or, or even completely masking them as long as you have to keep taking the pill for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yep. That's it. A lot of uh, incentives going in the wrong direction, but uh, I'm really curious about something that you mentioned. Somebody who had a remission of symptoms on ivermectin who apparently had mold toxicity. What, what exactly is the mechanism for ivermectin? How does it act on, like, uh, I understand it's um, to eradicate you know, worms, flukes. How does it do that? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's toxic to worms, which is, which is a different thing. So it has multiple mechanisms that we think work for COVID. And, you know, so it blocks the binding of COVID-19 to the cell. It it binds to the spike protein. So if there's free spike protein, it'll bind to that and help your body get rid of it. Um, It has anti-inflammatory effects in the body. So specific anti-inflammatory effects that, you know, COVID will trigger certain kinds of inflammation and ivermectin will inhibit those specific kinds of inflammation. So like what we see in the bodies, we'll see elevated, for example, interleukin-6 and ivermectin will decrease interleukin-6. So it's basically suppressing a certain type of inflammation that's activated by COVID. And so what we assume is that the same kinds of inflammation that COVID kicks up in your body are kicked up by other biotoxin illnesses. So these are essentially all biotoxin illnesses. It's a toxin from some kind of biological entity. And in the case of COVID, it's a spike protein. In the case of mold, it's, you know, one of the toxins from the mold, right? And, and those toxins, your body responds to them in a certain way. It creates a certain kind of inflammation that becomes chronic. And so in the case of COVID, what we find is that certain macrophages, they gobble up the spike protein, but then they never get rid of it. 
they just get stuck with it and they become, you know, inflammatory macrophages and they just cause this chronic inflammation. And so your body is kind of hit a short circuit. It's gotten into this vicious cycle that I can't get out of. And when you, when you artificially clamp down on the inflammation that's being caused with ivermectin, the body is able to process that spike protein and rid itself of it, which is what we see. We see people clearing the spike protein. So, so we've, we've seen the spike protein in their macrophages. We've seen the inflammation that the macrophages are causing. We give them ivermectin or fluvoxamine or a number of other medications that get rid of different kinds of inflammation that we find in these people. And um, so ivermectin doesn't, it's, it's not like a cure-all for long COVID or, you know, likely for any biotoxin illness. There's, there's other forms of inflammation that some people's bodies will create. And, and you might need to use fluvoxamine for them. You might need to use Mravrock, which is an HIV drug for them. There's a number of drugs. Sometimes low-dose prednisone is used. Um, sometimes statins are used. I mean, there's really a lot of drugs that <clears throat> have shown efficacy for different parts of the inflammation that have been found. Ivermectin is like a great place to start, I think, because it's got such low toxicity levels. You know, it's such a benign drug. And why not try that first instead of trying something that might be a little bit, you know, poorly tolerated like fluoxamine. So um, that's the reason I like to start with it first. So so you, you tamp, what we've seen is when you tamp down on the inflammation that's being caused, the body is able to work better and clear out that spike protein. So those macrophages are able to actually get rid of the spike protein once, once they're not in an inflammatory environment, even though they've like kicked up the inflammation themselves, they enter this vicious circle where then they can't work properly and they can't get rid of that spike protein that's in them. And so when you, when you get rid of the inflammation that they're causing themselves, then they are actually able to work better. So when something's inflamed, you you just can't, things in the body don't work properly. And so the body's self-healing capacity isn't working properly when that inflammation isn't, is there. Once you, once you have gotten rid of the inflammation, then the body is able, basically able to heal itself. So, so this is what we're doing. We're getting things out of the way, obstructions out of the way in order to allow the body to heal itself. And, and so I don't know exactly how it's working with mold toxicity because we haven't actually studied it yet, but it may be something similar. It may be that, you know, if you're continuing, like that lady was, you know, exposed to mold and it's not like she was um, leaving that environment, but perhaps, you know, I mean, this must have been part of it that the inflammation the mold was causing was being reversed by the ivermectin, even though the mold was still there. And she, she had been properly diagnosed with mold toxicity. I mean, it wasn't like I was just guessing. And like I said, she had the whole you know, house taped off you know, by a mold remediator. And she had gone to somebody who had diagnosed her with mold toxicity and told her you know, what she was supposed to do. She knew about Shoemaker protocol and she just wasn't able to do it. Well, Dr. <clears throat> Shoemaker's theory about biotoxin toxi- toxicity was that it's a um, voltage-gated ion channelopathy, similar to ciguatoxin poisoning. And when I read about ivermectin, I read its magic effects on flukes, on worms, is that it blocks a critical ion channel uh, so effectively that they cannot survive. And it's just one dose and it wipes them out completely. And it just seemed to me that perhaps this is a clue that there's some commonality between the mechanism of how it's affecting, you know, flukes and how it affects a, or has some result with an yeah. uh, voltage-gated ion channel in mold toxicity. Yeah, I, I didn't consider that. I didn't know about that. So if, if it is having an effect on voltage-gated ion channels, it's having that effect on, on the human, you know, voltage-gated ion channels versus, you know, in the case of like the liver flukes or any of those parasites, you know, the effect that it's having is on the 
infectious agent itself to kill it, right? Whereas with mold toxicity, my understanding of it is that you, you don't you don't actually have like a active in mold infection, right? In most cases, like people are right. It's just toxicity. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, a toxin, and it's not like mold is growing inside you, causing toxicity. You're exposed to mold spores, and you're reacting to them. It's not like something living and multiplying inside you. So, so if that, and it's certainly possible. So, with with any medication, including ivermectin, there there's probably there are probably hundreds of different things that it does in your body, and you know, usually we don't you know, consider them, they're the causes of side effects, you know, that we don't care about or that we try to minimize or we just have to deal with. So there, you know, there are things that it does that we don't even know. I think I'm glad that you brought it up. You know, I didn't realize that this might've been one of the things that it's doing for mold toxicity. It's certainly possible. It's kind of along a different line and maybe it's part of how it works for COVID as well, but I don't know. But there was a huge fuss about a uh, anti-cancer drug, rituximab, a few years ago because some doctors that were treating cancer miraculously had their chronic fatigue syndrome patients clear out. So this led to a trial of rituximab to find out if this was effective, just strictly on the basis of this you know, accident that it, it seemed to have an effect. And if ivermectin clears up mold illness, well, then this needs to be reported. We need to start asking if other people on ivermectin have had uh, their coincidental, you know, mold illness, the comorbid mold illness cleared up. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's absolutely correct. A lot of times in, you know, medical history, we've had this, you know, observation, you know, you treat one thing and then you, you know, you find that something else clears up. And oftentimes that's the cause of that. That's what leads to, you know, incredible treatments, like, you know, treatments for erectile dysfunction. That's basically how they were, were found or discovered, you know, Viagra was one of these uh, <laughs> discoveries where they were treating probably, I think, hypertension, and they found that uh, erectile dysfunction was improved. So you're right, it needs to be, you know, this information needs to be widely disseminated, you know, and, and I think anyone with mold toxicity who has symptoms and who's struggling with it, and, and maybe they're on the protocol, they're trying to get rid of it, they're trying to get over it, it's certainly worth, you know, worth giving it a shot, right, to see what happens. Because again, it's like, it basically doesn't interact with anything except for warfarin. And, and you can mitigate that interaction, you know, if you're really committed to using ivermectin. Other than warfarin or, you know, Coumadin, there's really no significant drug interaction. So like, it's one of those things that, you know, for example, if people, if somebody's hospitalized with COVID, you can feel comfortable just blindly telling the doctor to give ivermectin. Like, it doesn't matter what they're on, even if they're on the Coumadin, because in the hospital, they're going to be checking that, you know, level of Coumadin every single day anyway, and adjusting it up and down. So like, I can literally just blindly tell anyone in the hospital that it's okay to take ivermectin. You know, I don't even have to talk to them. I don't have to check their medical record. I don't have to, even if they have liver disease, you know, just nothing really is a contraindication. There's, there's no clear hundred percent contraindication using ivermectin. And again, it's so safe that no matter what somebody with mold is taking, they could try ivermectin, you know? Some people have side effects, but I've never seen side effects that lasted, right? So like the most common one, I think that higher doses would be some like blurry vision or changes in vision, or sometimes the light looks a little bit different. Sometimes people get some nausea. Like it's just very rare to see any side effects at all. You know, a lot of people focus on the elevated liver function tests. Again, those aren't actually signs of liver damage. And there's never really been, I think there's one case out of billions of like actual inflammation in the liver. while on ivermectin, you know, what we thought was hepatitis basically. And, and so it's just, you know, when you look at things like Tylenol, 
the number one leading cause of liver failure in the U.S. You know, you can you can latch on to these rare instances, like in the case of ivermectin, extremely rare instances, and blow them way out of proportion, right? Like, you know, I remember I, th- I think it was maybe the CDC or the NIH they sent out a notice to people, you know, warning them against ivermectin, and I've, I have this on my blog. I think it, it might have been the AMA. Um, it was actually the American Medical Association, and I think it was in associate they they along with the American Pharmacists Association published like a, a little blog post or something, a notification, and they sent it out to all the physicians, right? So I got this in my email, and they're you know they're warning that you know ivermectin can cause nausea and vomiting, you know, just like everything can cause nausea and vomiting. It can cause you know like coma, death, you know these things. And basically, if you overdose on anything, it can put you into a coma or kill you, right? Like, I mean, you can overdose on water and you'll go into a coma and die, right? So, you know, the, the way that these things are worded is in such a way to just scare people, right? And without really giving them, you know, the context, right? So, like, certainly if somebody really, really, you know, tries really hard, sure, you, you could probably harm yourself with ivermectin, you know? It, it's really difficult to do at the doses that are used commonly. I mean people are going up to like five times the normal dose that's used for parasites. I mean, they're going from 0.2 milligrams per kilogram up to like one gram per kilogram for COVID-19 in some cases, especially with the late, with the latest variants without a problem, you know? And, and so like the, the oftentimes with, with drugs that we, and that's probably the reason that ivermectin is, is so safe is that you require such low doses that are so far away from the toxic doses. Whereas a lot of medications, the doses that you need for treatment are close to the toxic doses, right? Or, or have some overlap with them. And, and in the case of ivermectin, that's not, that's not how it is. It's just you, you can use minuscule doses compared to the doses that you would need for toxicity. But if somebody is treating themselves, you know, if they get the, the paste, you know, form of ivermectin that's used for horses, certainly, I mean, maybe, maybe they didn't calculate it right. You know, they take a whole tube of paste instead of like a fifth of a tube, you know, who knows? But some people ended up calling poison control. Um, there were actually no serious incidents reported to poison control. I mean, it wasn't like no, no one was actually hospitalized with ivermectin toxicity. But they, the way that these like warnings have been worded, you know, they've been just taken out of context and worded kind of vaguely, kind of insinuate that there is a bigger problem than there is a much bigger problem. And, and really, there is no problem. So they're they just create these things out of, they're just lies created out of whole cloth, you know, with like tiny grains of truth in them, maybe perhaps that are used to just completely obfuscate the reality. Yeah. The uh, Center for Disease Control is fully aware of toxic mold at the basis of the Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome. And they obfuscate this, they hide it by saying, well, mold might be a risk factor for chronic fatigue syndrome, but we don't really know when they're fully aware of it. Yeah. I mean, at this point in time, you know, like you hear this a lot, right. From people who want to sound intelligent or, or, you know, oftentimes are intelligent, actually correlation doesn't equal causation. I mean, like, sure. Like it's not always going to be causation, but you know, where do you get the clue to look into causation? It comes from correlation first. Right. And so this, this is just like a slate of hand or something, right. Trying to like mislead people that, Oh, and just dismiss them, right? Just because there's a correlation, it's not positive. But oftentimes when there's a correlation, it is causative. And especially when you have like a, a clear like path to causation, right? Like you've laid it out. 
and you've shown how it is causative, right? You can't ignore it anymore. There's a correlation and there's this clear mechanism of causation that we've found, right? Like you can, you can show it, like how is causation happening? Here it is. This is the biochemical, you know, mechanism behind the, the reason we think it's causative. And so, so this is, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that people are so, you know, pro ivermectin is that not, not only is there a correlation, like you give it and people get better, but there's multiple biochemical like mechanisms of action in the test tube. You see that it's clearly um, inhibitory to COVID-19 replication, right? It works in the test tube. There's like five or six different mechanisms that we've found that show like why it would work against COVID-19. So it's not like a mystery. It's not like, you know, oh, this is just uh, you know, it's just a correlation. It has nothing. There's no reason why we would believe that it would work. And, and the same, you know, goes the other way with mo- when you have an illness and you see that it's correlated with some, some other, you know, factor like mold, you have chronic fatigue syndrome and there's a correlation, you know, a bunch of people who have mold toxicity also have chronic illness. I mean, that, that's an interesting correlation, but we've gone beyond that at this point, right? Like we've shown really the mechanism of how it's causing chronic fatigue syndrome. We already, we know the mechanism here. Well, actually, uh, when I was asked to become a, a prototype for this new syndrome, that's exactly what I was concerned about, is that the uh, researchers were going to use the argument that correlation does not equal ca- causation as a um, means to create you know, confusion and put off doing research into this. And I said, well, as a prototype for the syndrome, who was in the actual room that baffled Dr. Gary Holmes into creating this syndrome, I can put together a tangible connection between the illness that was being investigated, the one that the syndrome is based on, and this toxic substance. So that's one step up from mere correlation. That's direct relationship, cause and effect. But they didn't see it that way, so there was no follow-up. Yeah, and the other you know, remarkable thing is that um, it seems like it's kind of hard to get acceptance for new testing methodologies, right? Like you have like these basic tests that have been done for like 50 years. You have CBC, CMP, you know, you test liver function, kidney function, and you have some tests that are used in rheumatoid arthritis. You have these kind of tests from that, those kind of tests. So you have these, it's, it's hard to get people to accept new tests, right? So like you have new tests for Lyme disease and you have new tests, you know, more accurate tests for mold toxicity. And it's just really hard to get anyone to accept these new tests and to start using them widely, right? Like, um, and the same goes for this incel DX test that uses, you know, inflammatory markers that aren't commonly used, you know, outside of research laboratories. So you have to send it off to a specific specialty lab. And so like, you'll have a new syndrome or a new disease that's discovered and enumerated and like explained. And the only way to diagnose it is based on tests that aren't widely available that, that every lab doesn't do. And when that's the case, it's hard to like get all those labs to buy into these new tests, right. To actually start doing them. Um, So that's one of the, one of the difficulties in spreading this is for some reason, it's hard for those specialty labs to, go from creating a new test to actually disseminating it to everyone. You know, there's done, this buy-in doesn't happen. Like people don't spread it and, and start telling people about it. And, and the other thing, you know, like I said, there's a lot of reasons why things don't change in medicine. And one of them is that it's really hard to like update doctors on new information. You know, it's like medicine changes with each generation, right? Like even, even things that are widely accepted and like mainstream, 
it's hard to convince the older generation of physicians who weren't taught those things in med school to start doing something new, you know? So, so there's that problem with even mainstream science. And so it's just compounded and, you know, with, with things that are outside the mainstream, even slightly. So it, it just makes it, you know, orders of magnitude harder to get anyone to change and start doing something differently. Yeah. The, um, just as you say, the mindset is that uh, everything has to have a test. And yet the underlying assumption behind creation of a syndrome is that this is a new entity and doesn't have a test yet. Mm-hmm. So really the hardest thing about talking to a, a doctor or a researcher about this is to say that you don't approach this by assuming that you've already test. You do the opposite by making the assumption that the, the tests have not yet been developed and keep open the, the possibility that this is an illness that has not yet been entered into the literature and for which there is no testing. Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, you know, the experience I get or a lot of patients have is that even once the test is developed, you'll take it to your doctor and they'll be like, I've never heard of this test. You know, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. And they're not willing to call the lab and learn about it. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, most doctors, 99% of them just don't have time to do anything outside of like the algorithm that they see in front of their computer, you know, or on their computer that tells them what to do next for their patient, right? Like, did you check that they got their flu shot? Did you check they got their pneumonia shot? Did you check that they're on a statin? You know, it's like, you know, they go through these check boxes in their electronic medical record and they have, you know, 15 minutes with a patient out of which like five minutes are spent talking to the patient while staring at a computer screen. So there's, you know, people just doctors, again, the incentives have enslaved most physicians, you know, and, and they're just like automatons, you know, just like marching ahead to their orders. And one of the uh, really old tests uh, on a standard blood panel included the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Mm-hmm. Have you checked the, the sed rate in long COVID? So I haven't had really a chance to do this with most of my patients. Very rarely, I'll be able to get testing done with patients through telemedicine, in, in which case sometimes I have done it with uh, chronic long COVID patients, but I haven't done it enough to actually see a lot of elevation. So sometimes I'll do ESR and CRP. So this is still done you know, in, in hospitals sometimes with chronic inflammatory conditions to see what it is but I haven't done it enough times to see a correlation. The first blood abnormality in the mystery illness that was later named chronic fatigue syndrome was an extremely low sed rate. Oh, zero. Yeah. And doctors didn't take note of this because they were taught that to look for an elevated sed rate as a sign of inflammation. Right. So when the reverse was happening and abnormally low one that you would see only in infants, or about five other known diseases like sickle cell anemia, when this cropped up, they said, well, your sed rate is normal. Yeah. And zero, zero is not, is not normal. No. <laughs> so um, when the uh, long COVID emerged, I read that there were observations of an elevated sed rate. And I go, well, we'll have to watch how this develops because that's directly opposite to chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that about... Um... So, I, well, I mean, mold toxicity, I didn't know that about mold toxicity, but is it the same for chronic fatigue syndrome in general that like patients who are diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome are also generally low with, have a low ESR? <clears throat> yeah. Dr. Paul Cheney, the um, famous doctor who essentially started the syndrome by calling it CDC for help, established a chronic fatigue syndrome clinic. 
and running the same tests and using the same protocols that he was for the Lake Tahoe mystery illness and found that every time he saw an extremely low SID rate, it eventually turned out to be the same exact illness entity as the um, what was named chronic fatigue syndrome. Wow. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. And Dr. Um, Shoemaker said that he commonly sees this in mold illness. But what about the CRP? Do you know about that? Is that also... Is that that could remarkably be unchanged in chronic fatigue syndrome, which is a little bit surprising because they were expecting to find it elevated and it's not. That's interesting. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not like, in some cases it may not be inflammation, but just immune dysfunction, right? Like the immune system may actually be less active than it should be in some cases. I mean, that's what it yeah, seems to be, uh, right? Like if the CRP is low or the ESR is actually lower than normal, you know, when it's high, it's a sign of inflammation or the immune system is more active than it should be. But, you know, you could go in the opposite direction. You could actually have parts of the immune system less active than they should be. Yeah, we're assuming that the, uh, the, the core problem is mitochondrial insufficiency. That at the root of this whole thing, for some reason, the mitochondria are not producing enough ATP to meet energy demands of the body. And it's resulting in some very contrary immune findings that um, have baffled researchers for years. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, like I was saying earlier, I think there's some overlap, right? But they may not be exactly the same thing, certainly, because you, you have some similarities, right? With people who have long COVID, you know, a lot of them have fatigue, right? Severe fatigue, and it's chronic, but it's not necessarily chronic fatigue syndrome, right? Like it's, it's its own specific syndrome, right? Like it has its own specific characteristics and its own specific kind of symptoms that you see along with fatigue, right? So, so it's certainly not exactly the same thing that people have been suffering from, you know, in the past. And it might be part of a family of illnesses that are similar, but they're, they're all different, right? So like biotoxin illnesses depend on the specific toxin, you know, so people are going to react in specific way to specific toxins. And, and you're, and you're correct that like what we've labeled chronic fatigue, maybe it is primarily mold toxicity or maybe all mold toxicity, you know, maybe there's a certain biotoxin that has been triggering what we labeled chronic fatigue. And these other syndromes are, are triggered by something else. And they have their own specific, you know, etiologies, they have their own specific immune dysfunctions and their own specific symptoms. So like, you know, in long COVID, you have a lot of typical symptoms that you don't see all the time with people with chronic fatigue, right? Like you have, you know, their, their heart will just start racing. There's a lot of, I don't, you know, again, I, I'm not an expert on chronic fatigue. So maybe some of these are found with chronic fatigue too, but um, you know, like the loss of smell and, uh, and taste is sometimes there. And these, uh, these problems with, um, you know, where your heart rate is just extremely variable, you know, and, and also a lot of problems that have some overlap with antihistamine illnesses or the allergic illnesses. Yeah, the original Lake Tahoe chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak was seemingly touched off by a marathon runner who had been in China, caught this strange flu in China, came back to town, and within weeks, people, hundreds of people in town lit up with this strange flu from China. And this was reported in a couple of videos back in 1985-1986. And when they started calling it chronic fatigue syndrome, doctors learned to think of this as chronic fatigue, and they completely forgot about the viral flu-like illness that touched it off. And I thought as, as they looked over the history, as they began to compare long COVID with chronic fatigue syndrome, 
somebody might, might remember that actually it started with the flu from China, but so far they haven't done so. Yeah. So, I mean, the, there's, you know, evidence of a lot of different viral illnesses triggering fatigue, you know, that may last for years afterwards. So, you know, just the flu itself, you know, I was surprised to learn this. I hadn't known until just a few months ago, Dr. Yo from, or Yojendra from Incel DX tweeted out about it. That something like, you know, 30, 35% of flu cases end up causing kind of a long flu syndrome, similar to long COVID, but triggered by the flu. And then you have EBV or Epstein-Barr virus commonly causes, you know, I have a lot of patients come to me and they tell me that they had Epstein-Barr, you know, as teenagers and they had fatigue for like two years and then they finally got over it. And now the same thing has been triggered by COVID. The other interesting thing with COVID is that, or with long COVID is that it's, especially when it's difficult to treat, it's sometimes multiple things happening at the same time. The, the inflammation from long COVID seems to sometimes reactivate other chronic infections like Epstein-Barr virus and, and sometimes also interact with people who have, you know, chronic Lyme disease and trigger like relapses of other illnesses that they had in the past. And so in some cases you have to, you know, not only treat long COVID, but also specifically address those other chronic infections that have been reactivated. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember when EBV was known as the kissing disease. Yeah. <laughs> a fairly trivial thing that happened to everybody, 95% of the population. Right. And that if it went on for any longer than a month, there was something wrong with you. That was abnormal. And I see over the years, things have changed. And now people are not recovering from Epstein-Barr virus like they used to. And that itself is the abnormality. Yeah. So this uh, you know, brings up like what's, what's happening on a population-wide level in the world, right? And you know, we're surrounded by toxins in our food, in our water, you know, pesticides, you know, we're seeing our health gradually deteriorate with each passing generation. People used to get, you know, our grandparents were probably healthy into their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s sometimes. And then their children, you know, started developing diseases maybe 10 or 20 years earlier than their parents had. And then their children are developing diseases 10 or 20 years earlier than their parents. Each generation diseases on a population-wide level are developing, you know, a decade or two earlier, right? Now we're to the point where you have teenagers and, you know, kids younger than 10 coming in with, you know, asthma and allergies and obesity and diabetes, cancers. And so, you know, there's, there's a number of things going on, right? Like there's some epigenetics at play here. And there's like the first generation that's exposed to a really terrible industrial diet is oftentimes very well capable of, of dealing with it without getting unhealthy or without even developing obesity, right? Like there's stories, I think it's in Weston Price's book of, you know, like African soldiers when the British empire was there in Africa and they were trying to get these Africans to gain weight and they just could not, no matter what they fed them or how much they fed them, they just would not gain <clears throat> any weight, right? Like they, their body had a set point and it just stayed there. And so as those people are fed really, you know, terrible industrial seed oils and refined carbohydrates their entire lives, their epigenetics change and they pass on diminished genetic inheritance to their children. And so their children start their lives with less, you know, genetic wealth than their, than their parents had. And so if they're exposed to the same disease causing environment, um, maybe through pesticides and through poor diet and through lack of exercise and through stress and all this stuff that we have in the modern world, their epigenetics 
worsen and they pass on, pass that on to their children. So there's this, you know, like when genetics was being developed, there was this, uh, there was the two opposing schools, right? Like there was the school of thought that like, you know, with the giraffe, like stretching its neck, you know, <laughs> you know, trying to reach the, the food higher and higher that, that the changes that happened to a specific animal could be passed on to his children. And, and for, you know, a long time, we we discounted that theory. We thought that it was entirely incorrect, right? That like, that we could not pass on things that had actually happened to us during our lifetime to our children. But with epigenetics, we're learning that, you know, the stress that you undergo, you know, if you're, you know, if somebody, if an entire population is exposed to a war, you know, for example, like the stress of a war, that gets passed on at least three, gener- at least two generations into the future, right? So their grandkids you can see that they they actually have worse health because of the stress that their grandparents experienced going through a war going through wartime. So that there that's part of what's happening in our societies. Even if you have people, if your parents and your grandparents weren't leading a really healthy life, you know, trying to minimize toxic exposures and deal with their stress properly and eat right and exercise and everything, basically we're starting our lives at a disadvantage and we have to work a lot harder than our grandparents and great grandparents would have had to do to maintain a healthy body and and live a healthy life. When the uh, toxic mold phenomenon emerged in the 1980s, of course, I wanted to know if this was just me or, you know, what, what was going on. And doctors tended to, you know, with, in the lack of a logical explanation, attributed to toxic overload and the increasing body burden of pesticides and poor diet and denutrition food as things are taken out of the soil. But this had emerged so quickly that it seemed like it spread like wildfire through certain buildings. And then I asked my grandparents, I asked all kinds of the oldest people I could find if they had ever heard or seen anything like this sick building mold phenomenon before, and they all swore that they never had. Right. So when I see something like that, it, the way that I interpret it is that one, it could be an entirely new type of like virus or illness or infectious agent, right? Like an entirely new thing that human beings have never been exposed to before. That's one possibility. The other possibility is it's something that's always been around in people's environments, but the, the human kind of environment wasn't ripe for allowing it to cause disease, right? So with, with most chronic, like the approach of functional medicine or the understanding of functional medicine is that it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you've read Dale Bredesen's book on um, the end of Alzheimer's. He kind of gives this, the way he explains it is you have like a roof with like a hundred holes in it. And, and unless you plug all, so, so you can plug you know, a couple of them, you're not really going to have any, any difference with your Alzheimer's um, outcomes. So, so you've got this leaky roof and you've got like multiple points of failure, right? And then some of the holes might be really big. Some of them might be tiny. If you plug enough of them, you can kind of deal with the problem and, and maybe you won't have a problem. You're not going to get flooded. If you plug enough of those holes and especially the biggest ones, you still may have some leaks, but you'll be able to live your life. You'll be able to live in that house. You'll be able to like put a little a cup or something underneath the smallest leaks and, you know, throw away the water as it comes in. Um, but you're not going to, you're not going to destroy the, the home. You're not going to have it flooded. So, so like over time, I think what we're seeing is that the genetic wealth of people, like it's developing more and more holes 
And it's developing, so chronic diseases are developing because of multiple inputs. There might be a hundred different inputs, but the human, like human organism is so remarkable. Actually, all living organisms have this ability to maintain homeostasis, maintain equilibrium, despite things trying to push them off off of balance. Prior generations, they had enough resilience built in and there weren't all these things going wrong, right? So like they had less exposure to toxins and, and they had a better genetic inheritance from their ancestors than, than we do, unfortunately. Their ancestors hadn't been exposed to, you know, all these disease-causing agents for quite as long. So their, their, their genetic resilience, their, their just resilience in general was greater. And so our resilience has been diminishing over time. So I think what we're seeing is we're seeing people with diminished resilience exposed to the same things that prior civilizations have been exposed to, but now those things are actually triggering disease that we can see. So even though we people have always been exposed to mold, you know, in some form or another, vast quantities of people, like basically no one, it was just an unknown syndrome, right, in the past for our ancestors. They didn't know of it. I mean, this kind of reminds me of a story by a traditional medical practitioner called the Hakim who studied in Afghanistan. And he, he studied with a, you know, an elder in a tribe in Afghanistan. And he described to him, you know, heart disease and, and heart attacks. And this elder, you know, you know, medical practitioner, like he heard this description and he said, human beings don't die like that. That's not a disease that I've ever heard of, right? Like there is no such thing as what you're describing to me, right? Like heart disease and heart attacks. Whereas, you know, we see them all the time in Western civilization. I mean, in in his experience and in his, you know, in the thousands of years of medical ancestors, you know, and his medical tradition, they had just never seen that, right? Ever before. And I mean, you could say like it was dietary, you know, stress-related, you know, all these different things that end up leading to heart disease. But certainly, you know, some people in that tribe and in the past should have had, you know, predisposition to heart disease, but the, you know, the environment just um, wasn't triggering it. But, you know, you take people from, you know, from extremely healthy cultures, like you take people from Okinawa, you know, where they live to 90, you know, regularly, and you move them to the United States. And within one generation, they have all the diseases that everyone else does, you know, so like their children will develop obesity and asthma and allergies. So there's, there's certainly a difference in environment and in what we do, the inputs that we're putting into our lives, you know, in terms of stress management and diet and, you know, lifestyle issues and toxic burdens. So, so those things certainly do trigger disease, but they may not trigger it in that first generation who has just stronger genetics, basically, or stronger epigenetics, perhaps you could say. Just thank you so much for, I mean, everything that you're talking about. I had so many questions as you were, you know, giving us your, your information and and your experiences and just overall, you know, thinking about your baseline practice before COVID and now I'm just really curious as to like, how do you feel about everything that is going on and these, these medical board threats against you? I'm just really curious. I think we're entering dystopian reality unfortunately. And it's accelerating. People talk about like the fourth turning. I, I, I kind of subscribe to that whole theory that civilization is really in for a really terrible period in the next couple of years. You know, like in my lifetime, you know, the rate of change has always been, you know, pretty fast compared to kind of changes that people in prior generations saw. Our culture has been changing quite quickly in the last 40 years that I've been alive. 
but the speed of change of our culture has just gone logarithmic, right? Like it's just a, it's like a hockey stick change in the last 10 years, right? Like you, you, you can say something today and then like next year it's a firing offense, right? Like, like something that everyone accepts as perfectly normal today, next year could all of a sudden be deemed, you know, something that's like beyond the pale and this person deserves to be put in jail for it or, you know, shunned for life. Right. So, so that's happening. We see that happening in our culture and we see that happening in, in every area of our lives. Right. And in medicine, it's happening. We're just, we're headed for this really 1984 is really what it feels like, right? Like the book 1984, it just feels like we're, we're headed for that reality. And, you know, the, just the prophetic nature of that book just astounds me, you know, like you go back and read it and you're just like, Oh my God, right? Like this guy saw what was coming and it's, it's unfortunate. And it's really scary for, for me and for other people who are going through this, that like, you know, you can, you can see very clearly why people self-censor right? Because I have a family, I have to put food on the table. You know, you go through four years of undergrad and four years of med school and like three years of residency minimum. And and you put in, you know, you're, you're in debt and you've put in a decade of your life and, and a lot of money into, you know, your career and, and you owe a lot of money. Right. And so like you have people all over the world who like, they can't speak out and they can't fight back or they feel like they can't because their families and their lives depend on them being quiet and, you know, censoring themselves. And, you know, I like to think the best of people. I, I like to think that most people believe in what they're doing, but I think fewer and fewer people can actually convince themselves that what they're doing is, is truly, you know, what they should be doing in every situation. Like, like you look at people in medicine, you look at people in, you know, pharmacists, you look at uh, even journalists, right? Like, I mean, you often wonder, like, how can these people live with themselves? You look at people in pharmaceutical companies. I think for the most part, people have been selected so that they are the believers, right? Like they believe that what they're doing is right. That's the only reason they're in those positions of authority is because no one else would have reached that position. If you truly believe that what you were doing was wrong, you actually wouldn't have ended up in those positions. So our, our incentive structure, it filters out everyone who would be a dissident or who doesn't believe the party line. And it only selects for those people who kind of believe, have a belief system and publish things that benefit, you know, the, the power structures in place already. But despite that, you know, filtering system, since things are changing so quickly, you see a lot of people in medicine and probably journalism and in every industry just becoming like, like the way I was becoming disenchanted with what they're doing. Right. Like, that's what I found. You know, I entered medicine really like gung-ho, like, you know, I was excited. I thought science was wonderful. I thought medicine was wonderful. And then after a few years, you start looking around and just waking up to the fact that you're not helping anyone. You're just, these people are not actually being helped. And, you know, there's not enough focus on lifestyle, right? Like you could actually cure probably 90% of, of problems very, very easily if people just took a couple of months and overhauled their lifestyle, right? And in a in a society that worked properly, though the incentives would be in place for that to happen, right? You would incentivize kind of like a community-based and team-based approach to help people lift themselves up and, and change what they eat and change what they do and change how they exercise and change how they sleep and connect better with people and relieve their stress and everything and, and get rid of a lot of these chronic illnesses instead of just giving them a pill and sending them home. And then the other thing that I started realizing was that a lot of these pills are 
probably perpetuating chronic illness. They're not, you know, it's not even like a Band-Aid. It's actually worsening the illness, right? So, and it kind of makes sense that like your body, like anyone who comes to you with a chronic illness, their body is responding to something in the only way it knows how, right? So, so you have certain inputs pressing in on you and your body kind of adjusts to that, that things that are causing the illness, the body adjusts to that. And that's the manifestation of an illness. It's like, you know, if you touch something hot, you're going to say, ouch, and you're going to pull away and it's going to hurt, but it hurts for a reason. It hurts to prevent you from harming yourself even more. And so all these chronic illnesses, the symptoms are signs telling you to stop doing something so that you get better, right? And, and what we're doing is we're covering up that thing, like we're numbing ourselves, right? So that if you numb yourself completely, you'll end up harming yourself continually, right? Like you'll, if somebody's completely numb, they're not going to be able to go through life without ending up in a wheelchair, right? You're just going to stub your toe. You're going to develop an infection. You're going to touch something hot and burn yourself. And, you know, you'll, you'll completely fall apart. And that's what, what we're doing to people with these, you know, chronic medications is we're, we're creating a numbing effect, you know, getting rid of their symptoms, you know, and, and so the body actually pushes back because it's like, I don't want my blood pressure to be low. There's a reason that I have my blood pressure high. Right. And so you, you give something to artificially lower the blood pressure and you see the blood pressure fights back over, you know, a couple of months or a couple of years, you have to increase the dose of the medicine. You have to add another medicine and it keeps getting worse, you know, and eventually you can't control the blood pressure. We have a lot of people who are in their eighties and their blood pressure is just completely wildly out of control. There's like nothing you can give them that'll work. And, and no one wonders like why, right? Like um, doctors just don't wonder. And, and so I think more and more are starting to realize that what we're doing just doesn't make any sense. It's like incoherent. The basis of our medical system just does not make sense. It does not compute. And it's, it's not really a science, right? It's more of a religion, you know? And, and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of things that are called science are really just religions. They're, they're not really scientific at all. That rant was fantastic. I mean, you know, when we schedule these interviews, we never really know who we're bringing on the show until we start having a conversation, until they start revealing their true selves. And we're a free speech platform. We're a no bullshit platform, really. We've all had our lives turned upside down from mold and have been taken advantage of from remediators and doctors and so, so we're at the point where enough is enough and we're looking for the people like you, the doctors like you, although in a minority still exist. And we have to give you guys these platforms to say what you feel, to, to speak truth to what is going on because the media is just running wild with madness. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, one of the things I want to just kind of like jump in here that, you know, sure. From what you just said, that just reminds me is that like, you know, being taken advantage of, you know, it's just too common that like people will, they'll develop something, you know, mold toxicity or any, any chronic illness. And, you know, they don't get, it's like no joy from your regular doctors. They don't help you. They just give you pills and try to cover it up or they, they uh, tell you that there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head or whatever. So, th- so that's one problem, right? Like this denial and no one's listening to you and no one's accepting your experience. But then a lot of people end up going to a functional medicine or alternative medicine practitioner and, and they will believe you, right? And it's like a relief. It's like, thank God somebody believes me and they have an answer and they have something, you know, a diagnosis for me. First step is, okay, spend $10,000 on tests and give me, you know, $2,000 to, you know, even get started with a workup and, you know, all this stuff. And so like, you feel really taken advantage of, and some people end up doing all of that. And, and then they're like, okay, now spend $3,000 a month on like 70 pills and take those for the next six months. And, you know, all this stuff, right? Like I said, you can solve 90% of problems and maybe even more than that 
just yourself, right? Just learning about diet, lifestyle, stress, getting out in nature, interacting with friends and family. And, you know, like, like all these things can really solve most problems, right? Like it's really, I think, pretty rare. Somebody actually has to go and spend thousands of dollars to get better. That may be the only thing you're willing to do, but it doesn't mean that's the only thing, that's the only option available, right? Like you can get better with simple supplements that you can find online. And it's just, you know, it's a matter of education. And I have, have had experience with, with people who were like extremely poor. Like they, they just couldn't go through all of that, right? They would go to a, you know, somebody and they would say, you know, you have cancer, you have stage four cancer, all you, your only option is chemo and radiation and maybe surgery. And it's going to cost you, you know, $200,000. And this is somebody in India or in the Middle East somewhere and, or in Africa, and they just don't have the money. They don't have insurance. They have no other option, right? And they're faced with like a life-ending you know, diagnosis. And so these people who are extremely motivated by seeing their imminent death, if you can get them to just comp- like really like extreme lifestyle overhaul, right? With things that are readily available to them in their environment, like maybe juicing fresh vegetables and just getting rid of every toxic food you can imagine and, you know, getting, you know, getting them on a complete anti-inflammatory diet, telling them, you know, do this exercise and take, you know, some turmeric and, you know, do this and that time. And again, I've seen like incurable diseases, like reversed within weeks, right. It's just a matter of how dedicated you want to be. Right. And, and, and the thing is that it's hard to, to commit to something that drastic if you don't believe it. Right. So you got to talk to one, a doctor who's seen it enough times that they can like convince you that like, Hey, you can literally cure probably anything if you're committed enough. Right. If you do everything I say, you'll probably be over this in weeks, but, but you'll have to continue with some form of this program. Right. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to like change everything and you're going to have to try to not go back to your old stuff, right. Your old life. Because like, unfortunately I've seen people cured of cancer, like literally cured of stage four cancer. And then they, they go back, like a couple of years later, they like, they start to cut corners and they start to go back to like the McDonald's and, and then it comes back. And, and oftentimes, unfortunately, it's actually a lot worse when it comes back for some reason. And, and, and these illnesses can actually be, you know, a much bigger monster if you, if you get rid of them once or you suppress them to the point where you, you just, they're like, they appear to be completely gone, but then you let them rear their head again. And it's, I've actually seen this with long COVID too, people feel, they think that they've gotten over it and it's completely cured. And then, and then they get off of the medication and the treatment or the lifestyle change too soon. And it comes back and it's, it's much harder to treat for some reason. So like people, especially I've seen this, especially with people who took ivermectin and then stopped too soon, it'll like kind of rear its ugly head again, and it'll be much, much harder to treat. But the, the main point I wanted to get across is that people often feel like, you know, I can't, okay, there is a solution, but it's just too expensive for me. And that's not, that's not true. That's not the case. That's one road to healing for a lot of people, but it's not the only road to healing. You know, it's a matter of how dedicated you're going to be to actually changing your life and getting over it. It is possible without spending a lot of money, without spending really any money. I might sound super cheesy right now, but I wish I could stand up and just give you a clapping (laughs) standing ovation over here because (laughs) this is everything that we talk about because we, I mean, Keely, Eric and I get, you have no idea how many messages per week, per day of people just desperate for help. And they've been to the mold expert and just everything that you're talking about is exactly what we all went through. And 
the cure-all for us was to get out of the mold and literally go camping in the desert, which costs maybe a few hundred bucks for your camping right. equipment, you know? And so that saved my life. I didn't even Aside think about from, <laughs> you know, the thousands of dollars that I spent on specialists and everything, it was just like, I wish someone would have just told me, hey, get out of the mold, be in a pristine environment so your body has a chance to calm down and heal. And there you go. It's a simple solution. But again, you know, that doesn't make money. So that's the problem. But that's where we're at with exposing mold. We're not, we don't care to be these millionaires or billionaires. We really just want to help people not suffer what we went through because you can lose everything. You can lose everything. And when I mean everything, it's not just monetary things. It's your family. It's your friends. It's your connections. It's, it's insane what people go through and what we see. And so again, what you said education is power at the end of the day, having the skills, having the knowledge. Thankfully, Eric was able to help himself just because of his military training that he was able to recall upon because of being exposed to tear gas or certain toxicants. He implemented all of that to help himself. And now he's providing that information to other people as well. And so that's kind of where we're going with exposing mold. And we're launching our own, you know, course where we're just providing the skills and the information to, to be able to heal if, what you've done is not helping. So that's why we're here. And you know what? I'm so glad we got together today to talk to you. Yeah. We'd love to partner again with you in the future, possibly on some research or whatever. We just really would love to support you because we need more doctors, more honest doctors like you out there. And I know that, you know, it, it's kind of a draconian reality that we're living in right now. And, and it is pretty Orwellian at the end of the day, but I do see a tide turning. I do see more people coming face to face with the medical establishment or seeing loved ones being injured by vaccines or whatever the case, you know, being lied to or whatever. There's more people that are turning the corner on what's going on. They're starting to see that this is not right. Our rights are are slipping away. This is, this is more than just being concerned about people's health and giving them a vaccine because if health was really really the motivation for this, like you said, we would be preaching different things like lifestyle, nutrition, you know, probably would spend so much less money if we would just ship out packets to everyone with vitamin D and C and ivermectin. I mean, the cost variance is is just so crazy if you were to, to, to take that approach. But we, we understand that that at the end of the day, that health is not the motivation. Power, maybe money, we don't really know, you know, is the motivation. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist here. But, you know, we can only judge upon based on what's happening. And so if anyone wanted to consult with you, where could they find you? So it's uh, drsyedheider.com. So that's D-R for doctor. And then my name, S-Y-E-D-H-A-I-D-E-R.com. I have another website that redirects to mine. That's mygotodoc.com. So it's easier to spell M-Y-G-O-T-O-D-O-C.com, mygotodoc.com. Lately, I've, I've just been so overwhelmed with, you know, patients for COVID that, you know, we've had to kind of like stop doing a lot of acute consults and, and actually try to get people medications for prevention, you know, before they get sick and then treatment protocols before they get sick. So that, you know, it's just like, you know, one doctor just can't, you know, unfortunately there's like a handful of doctors literally in the country that are doing this right now. And and there have, you know, a few more have been added in the last few months during Delta, you know, more people have come on, but you have like hundreds of millions of people and just like, you know, maybe a hundred doctors across the country that are doing this. 
there's just no way that we can individually talk to every patient who gets sick. So this is one thing I really want to stress that you need to be prepared beforehand, right? Like you don't want to get COVID and get sick and be on day five or six or seven or 10 and, and then try to find a doctor and try to get your medicine from the pharmacy shipped in from somewhere else. And you need to have like a packet in your cupboard and you need to have all the directions printed out and all your questions answered. And that's kind of what I'm focusing on now to get this, these packets of treatment, like they did in India, like they did in all these countries where they got over this, right? where they basically eliminated COVID-19 in their countries. The only way they could do that was you give people the medications, you, you put them on prevention or you give them a medic, you know, a treatment kit that they put in their cupboard and they're ready to go. You know, at the first sign of illness, they're ready to go. With COVID, if you want your best chances of preventing long COVID, you need to start day one. You know, you start feeling sick and you just start treating. And and it's there's nothing dangerous, right? Like maybe you pull the trigger too early. Maybe you start treating a cold or the flu or allergies or whatever, right? No big deal, right? You, you know, it's fine, but it's better than, you know, risking going through COVID and then ending up with long COVID. So, so COVID, you know, it depends on who you are. Obviously, you can risk stratify, you know, people who are elderly, above 65, you know, they're at the highest risk of, you know, hospitalization and death. Everyone else doesn't really have to worry about hospitalization and death, right? Especially under 20, under 30. That's not really a big concern. But long COVID is is really, really remarkably common, especially in like 30 to 55-year-olds in that range. And especially like the healthiest people will come to me with like really severe long COVID. So you'll have people who are like, you know, Olympic athletes, or you'll have people who are like, you know, professional athletes or, or just like, you know, like gym rats, like they're, they're constantly working out and they're like in tip top shape and they'll come in with, and, and there's a huge skew towards that kind of patient population who develops long COVID. And, and part of it, I think is that the kind of like the good inflammation from exercise often triggers long COVID and, and it makes it get worse. And it's kind of something you see with chronic fatigue, with a subset of chronic fatigue syndrome that like, exercise actually makes you feel worse. And it's kind of like a net negative, like you'll exercise and you don't feel better. You know, you feel worse and, and it kicks up inflammation. So you see that with long COVID too. So I, I just, you know, one main point I want to get across around COVID and this pandemic, you know, like Gert Vandenbosch is saying, is we're probably breeding super variants, right? We may end up with something worse than Delta. You know, the normal, you know, flow of a virus in a population is that it gets less and less virulent. You know, it, it spreads better and better and easier and easier, but it's like less of a problem. And it should have turned into like a common cold within a year or two, right? But we may be actually pointing it in the opposite direction of becoming more virulent, you know, easily spread, but also worse, right? Like actually, you know, a stronger virus and, and a virus that's more harmful because of the, the way that we started vaccinating. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gert Vandenbosch, but he's a, he's a vaccinologist and a immunologist. And, and really like he, he's called everything right so far, like everything he said has happened. I mean, the, the latest you know thing I heard from him that really hit home was like, he was like, if this, this, and this continue to happen and we don't end up with like 10 times more deaths than we had before, I'll, you can put me in jail, you know? And, and so it's like, if you continue doing what you're doing, if you keep vaccinating everyone, if you vaccinate all the kids, if we continue down this path, we're, we're setting ourselves up for something, you know, 10x worse than what we, we, we've experienced so far. So, you know, it's like we're creating the Spanish flu, you know, like we didn't have a terrible illness. COVID-19 wasn't really that bad. And we're, we're, we're like designing it. You know, it's like an open experiment in the entire world. 
where we're trying to, you know, suppress something. And it's just like nonsensical what we're doing, you know, trying to give people these vaccines that are so far behind the curve, you know, like they're vaccines for the first generation. And now we're like three generations later, we're on Delta. The vaccines barely did anything for the first generation. I mean, I think, you know, these, these studies, it's just so easy to lie with statistics, you know, like the original vaccines were probably worthless. They were probably, they probably didn't do anything. They were probably actually worse than worthless. They were harmful. But even if you give them the fact that, okay, maybe they helped, right? Maybe they don't help for Delta and they're not going to help for what's next after Delta. And so, you know, what we're doing just doesn't make any sense. We're, we're actually pushing the virus to escape the vaccines and we're hobbling these people's immune systems with like immunity to something that doesn't exist anymore, right? Which may actually hinder them from developing immunity to what does come next, right? Um, so th- there's really a lot of problems. And, and unfortunately, the, you know, some things are easy to understand, but, you know, Gert Vandenbosch, like, like everything he's saying, it's not really that easy to understand, even for like a physician like myself, like his, the immunology is pretty complicated, actually, right? Like trying to understand everything he's saying you have to listen to it a few times, right? Like even myself, right? So like, like one of his points is that like, if you don't have like expertise in like three or four different areas that you can kind of put together, you're just not going to be able to understand what's happening. And you're not going to be able to, you know, give good, make good policy decisions. So you need to be, you know, you can't just be a physician. You can't even just be a, you know, somebody who specializes in vaccines. You can't just be somebody who specializes in virology. You have to like have an understanding of everything, right? Virology and immunology and vaccinology and you have to have multiple areas of expertise that you can, you know, integrate in order to understand what's happening. And, and that's where he's coming from. You know, he has expertise in multiple areas. And so like, you'll have people who just specialize in vaccines or just specialize in virology or just specialize in epidemiology. And, and they end up coming up with, you know, with incorrect, you know, they have incorrect assumptions and they have incorrect, you know, they're, they're not able to model things properly, you know? So you have all these models that are completely wrong. Right. And, and so, you know, if you look back at the, you know, what he's predicted so far, everything he said would happen has happened. And, and that's not the case for anyone else, right? Like, like you look at all these other people and they've always been wrong. Like Fauci has always been wrong, right? Like wrong over and over again. He was wrong with AIDS. He's wrong with this. And, and the same with like all these modelers who have been predicting, you know, the end of the world in the beginning. And now they're, you know, whatever they predict ends up being wrong. And, and you can give them benefit of the doubt and, and say that, you know, they thought that they were going to be correct and, and just their assumptions were wrong. But at the end of the day, you're not having this cross-disciplinary approach where you have, you know, you put in a room a bunch of experts and have them discuss it. And you're not allowing this open discussion, right? This open debate anymore. You know, social media is just shutting everyone down and, and all will allow is like the party line. And that just basically is destroying science, is destroying scientific inquiry. And, and it's eliminating our ability to discover truth right? You're like, you're just not allowing truth to emerge. You know, everyone who's being silenced, they, they, they may not have hundred percent of the truth, but if they're not allowed to discuss with other people, you know, in the mainstream, if everyone's not allowed to have a free and open discussion, we won't arrive at the truth. It's just not possible. And, and this is, you know, one of the worst things that's happening is that, you know, like you'll have a Facebook group with tens of thousands of people with long COVID or with mold toxicity or whatever it is, and it'll just get deleted overnight. And so, so like people's ability to connect with other people and like hear these stories, like I did this and I got better, right? Like people need to hear this a few times before they're willing to commit to like a, you know, a change in their lifestyle or to go camping in the desert. If, if somebody doesn't get to hear that from you, right, that I cured myself by doing X, Y, Z, 
you know, and oftentimes they have to hear it like three, four or five times. They have to hear it from a doctor. They have to hear it from a friend. They have to hear it from somebody on a podcast. Eventually they get to the point where like, wow, like then their worldview starts shifting, right? Like the ground under them starts to shift to the point where they're like, wow, the world that I thought, they, like I thought the world was one way and it's not right. And, and their understanding of reality kind of like shifts suddenly. And then like, it's like the sun comes out from behind a cloud and they're like, oh my God, there's hope. Right. Whereas like 99% of people nowadays in the world feel hopeless for like, you know, against chronic illness, against COVID, against everything. And, and we're, we're basically taking hope from them. Right. This is the worst thing. We're taking away knowledge and hope. And, and I think like what you guys are doing, what people are doing in alternative media is like perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important things, because there's always going to be doctors you can point people to. But like if no one knows to come to me, right, like how do I explain to people that I have a solution for them, right? For, for some, you know, for, pre- for preventing or treating COVID or how do people know that there's doctors out there who can help them through their, you know, chronic illness journey or help them get rid of mold toxicity. It's just a matter of knowledge and knowledge only comes when two people get together. I mean, you can't get it from a book, right? You can't get it from an article. You have to hear somebody and see somebody and like really connect like heart to heart connection, right? Like, like I see your face. I see the way you're telling me that like you went out into the desert, right? I wouldn't have gotten that level of conviction, you know, from just reading your account, right? On a blog, right? Like seeing you tell me, you know, that, that just makes the difference, I think. And that's what I've seen with people who aren't able to afford, you know, fancy treatments and stuff that the way to get to them and to convince them was to like go and visit them and sit with them for like an hour or so. And to have like a couple of people, like have one person who had been like cured of something, you know, that they had done the program and like, you know, had something like they had and got over it. And you have like a doctor who's got experience with seeing lots of people and you, and you just tell this, these stories, right? And if, and it takes, you know, with a personal kind of like setup like that, it takes at least an hour minimum, right? To like, where, where you'll see in front of you, like the patient, like the person starts off like really doubtful, like, you know, all my doctors have told me this is like incurable, right? Like I need these drugs and, you know, and, and their family tells them this and the whole society tells them that, right? You have to like overwhelm that like pre-existing, you know, set of like beliefs, right? And, and the only way to do that is through personal connections. Absolutely. And, and also just having the will, like you said, the will, the motivation, taking charge of your health. We've, we've created people in the society where we go to everyone for every little thing. We never think about what it is that I know intuitively and what can I do to better myself. Instead, I'm always putting my life in my hands and other people's, you know, in their hands. And so it's just like, we have to take our power back. We we have to know that there are simpler solutions that are safer solutions, that there is truth to matter. You know, these people are not, we're not conspiracists. You know, we, we, I've, everything that you've said, I've done for myself and I scream at the top of my lungs to everyone else, get your COVID meds, have it ready in your cabinet. You know, we lost my mother-in-law in the hospital because she didn't want to listen to what we had to say. She didn't want to do what we wanted her to do. And if I could turn back time and, you know, be there for our loved one, I would have done that. And sometimes that's what it takes 
for the loved ones that don't want to listen or that they don't believe this is a serious issue for those who are, who are at risk and who are older, don't just allow them to sit at home and write it out or, or sit at home until they become hypoxic because that's what these doctors are telling you to do. They're not helping you. And so be proactive in your life and your health and get your entire family set up with meds, with things that they need in their cabinets. And, and like you said, day one, start treatment. And that's exactly what me, my husband, his sister, everyone that we all had to race to Vegas to go help the mom. And we all ended up getting COVID. That's all we did. And we weren't able to provide that to her. And once your loved one is in the hospital, you have no power. The people who are prisoners of war have more rights than people in the hospital. You will not see your loved one until it is their final days. And that's what we had to go through. One of the worst things that I've seen in my career is that like literally people feel like they're in a jail cell in the hospital often and sometimes even though like they, even, even if you're not in the ICU, even if you're able to like get up and walk out, sometimes you feel like you can't because like, they'll tell you, uh, you know, all these reasons why you have to stay. And, and they'll say like, if you want to leave, you have to sign out against medical advice. You have to sign this form. And, and the problem is that if you sign out against medical advice, your insurance may not cover any of your hospital bill. Right. So you could be saddled with like tens of thousands of dollars or more. And, and like, so people feel like literally trapped, like I cannot leave right? Because I can't afford to leave, right? Like, like my insurance may not cover this stay because I left against advice. And so I have a lot of patients who basically tell me I am not going to go to the hospital no matter what. Right. And, and, and I had patients who were like low on oxygen and they were like, you know, I told them, you know, you're like, you're supposed to be in the hospital for this. And they're like, I don't care. Just give me some oxygen at home. I am not going because I'm going to die there. And it's true. Like I've tried to get medicine to people in hospitals. It's close to impossible. And, and it's definitely impossible to get them everything they need, right? Like one in a million chance, somebody might give you some ivermectin. They're not going to give you enough and they're not going to give you anything else that you need on top of it. Right. It's just incredibly difficult. And, you know, I had one guy in the hospital, he, he checked in and, and thankfully they let him go. Right? Like he wasn't that sick. So he was able to start his medication, you know, at home. But, you know, the doctor, like I spent like an hour talking to this doctor, right? And this was in a small hospital, kind of in the middle of nowhere, like a tiny little hospital, not part of a giant system. And still like the, the guy was like, you know, reasonable, but he just wouldn't do it, right? Like he wouldn't give the ivermectin. And um, people have smuggled in ivermectin, you know, and, um, and sometimes that's not even possible because you can't even get in to see people in some cases, right? Like you're literally not allowed into the hospital. No one's allowed in sometimes into these ICUs, especially. So this brings up something else that COVID has gotten worse. Okay. So like Delta is definitely worse. It comes on faster. It comes on much stronger and harder and quicker. And so like, it makes it even more important to start treating early. And the other terrible thing that I've heard, like even in the ICU, things used to work. Like we could save people in the ICU if we threw everything at them, right? Like Dr. Pierre Corey, if he got a patient in the ICU, he could oftentimes reverse the problem, save them. Nowadays, he tells me that it's the opposite, right? Like you might've been able to save nine out of 10 people before. Now it's like one out of 10 people. Once they get to the ICU phase of the illness, it's very, very hard. Even if you give them every single thing that we can think of, right? You do every possible thing we can imagine and they still die. If you don't cut nip this in the bud early and you're one of those people who's high risk elderly, if you let it go on long enough, it may not be reversible, even with the absolute, you know, top-notch standard of care, which is 
really hard to get. I mean, it's close to impossible to get, right? Like you just have to be lucky enough to end up in Dr. Corey's ICU. I mean, there's a handful of physicians and even they are starting to be blocked, right? So like Dr. Merrick, Paul Merrick, who's with Dr. Corey and started the FLCCC in Virginia, his hospital has basically prevented him now from treating patients in the ICU the way he wants to. And he's taken them to court now to allow him to do it. Like they will not give him the drugs in the ICU that he's asking for. And this is a doctor in the hospital who wants to treat patients, you know, appropriately. And he, his pharmacy in the hospital is not releasing the drugs for it, right? Like it's, it's a hospital policy not to treat COVID with these drugs. We've gotten to a place that's terrible, right? And, and it's, it's bizarre to, to physicians because we've never seen anything like this with anything else, right? Like we use off-label drugs most of the time. I mean, at least a quarter of outpatient prescriptions are off-label. 90% of what we give neonates or newborns are off-label drugs. I mean, there's nothing different about this, right? Like we have, I mean, you look at, I mean, it's just the, the levels of corruption are just becoming, like you said, people are starting to wake up. People, I, I think it would be like the entire country would be awake within like a couple of weeks if there wasn't such a strong clampdown on information spread, right? With social media and alternative media just being, you know, people have been driven off of all these platforms. I was kicked off of Twitter. You know, every, everyone's been kicked off of these platforms and kicked off of YouTube and not allowed to say what they want. If information was allowed to flow freely, there would not be locked up. Like governments wouldn't be able to do any of this. They wouldn't be able to prevent people from getting these drugs. They wouldn't be able to force people, you know, to go through lockdowns. I mean, you see, like there's this guy in Twitter, like a journalist, he keeps tweeting out, right? Like all these, you know, giant demonstrations all over Europe and you don't hear like anything in the mainstream media. So like no one realizes what's happening, right? So it's, it's just a matter of population control. So definitely we need to spread the word as much as possible. You know, the main thing is like, I, I'll give him that, that like maybe, you know, studies weren't done that well, right? A lot of them are kind of poor studies. The data is kind of poor, but like you have to weigh the risks and benefits, right? The risks of the protocol for COVID are very low, right? And the benefit is very high. And even if we don't have great data for it, right? Even if we have poor quality data, we have poor quality data for a lot of things, but we still do them just because the risk benefit ratio is so far skewed towards benefit and away from risk that it doesn't make sense not to use them. You know, so, so this is done all the time in medicine. There's a lot of things that we have really bad data for. We don't have randomized control trials for a lot of things and we still do them because the, the chance of a benefit outweighs the chance of harm. And, and these drugs are all known to be safe and effective. And, and so it's like, you go to a hospital and somebody tells you, no, ivermectin is too dangerous. You can't use it for COVID. But if you happen to have scabies while you're in the hospital, sure, we'll give you ivermectin, even if you have COVID, right? It's just like, it doesn't make sense, right? Like, it's not as if we believe that ivermectin is literally harmful for somebody or it could harm them because they have COVID. It's just like, we can't check a box and give a reason for giving ivermectin. Unfortunately, I'm left telling some people in the hospital, just say you're depressed, Right. So that you can at least get an SSRI, like they'll give you an SSRI in the hospital, even though they're literally, actually, they're not supposed to, right? Like somebody's hospitalized and they have depression because of like pneumonia. It's not actually an indication to start somebody on an antidepressant, right? Like you have, you're depressed because you're sick. That's not actually an indication to be put on an SSRI, but everyone will do it anyway, right? Even though it's not technically the correct course of action, any, everyone in the hospital does it anyway. So literally like the only way you can get treated in the hospital is to lie and say you have depression and, and request, you know, Prozac basically, you know, be like, Hey, I tried Prozac once when I was a kid, it worked really well for my depression. Now I'm really depressed again. Can I have some Prozac? 
that's really the only option people have now. That's the only drug that they're able to get for COVID. And, and that's the only thing you can tell people, you know, if they're stuck in that situation, if they're in a jail cell, really their only way out is to try to get some Prozac. Absolutely. Yeah. I, to even just get basic vitamin C and D. Even, you know, people can't even get their doctor to check their vitamin D level, let alone give them vitamin D, right? I mean, it's just so bizarre, right? I mean, you just can't understand it, right? Because like, no one could argue that if your D level is low, you should take some vitamin D. No one disputes that. And yet they won't even check. <laughs> they won't even run your vitamin D test. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the only way we can fight back is by trying to spread this information and doing what you guys are doing, you know, like try to reach as many people as possible and convince them to get the word out. And, and, you know, a lot of people, like you said, they're just not willing to get the treatment protocol that they need. I've had patients come and ask for like a treatment protocol for their whole family, right? Like I need drugs for everyone in my family ready to go because they're just not willing to do it for themselves. And so, you know, you, you can, you can get this stuff cheap, right? You can go to my free doctor. You don't have to come to me. You can go to India. You know, there's Indian pharmacies. I, I forget what it, India Mart, I think has them where you don't even need a prescription, right? It'll take like four weeks to get it, but you know, you can get it pretty cheap there. A lot of the, the, you know, the places that you go, like, like, I think probably one of the benefits coming to me is you can ask as many questions as you want through the chat function on our website. Like there's unlimited questions. There's no, like, we don't cut you off after two weeks or whatever. And oftentimes you're not going to get like a direct answer from me, but it'll be from a staff member, but it's based on my experience. And, and we've done the legwork to find pharmacies that are actually even cheaper than the Indian pharmacies. So, so that's one benefit. So you may end up, even though like my consult might be 115, you get these benefits that might actually end up outweighing it. Because if you go to a place like My Free Doctor or some of these other websites that are prescribing ivermectin for maybe like 50 bucks or, or less, My Free Doctor is actually like doesn't take anything. So it could be zero. But if they give you a prescription to a pharmacy like Ravku that ends up charging a thousand bucks for three months of ivermectin, you're not actually saving money in the end. So it's sometimes they have these, you know, relationships with one pharmacy and they won't use anyone else. And we've done the legwork to find literally the cheapest pharmacies in the country. So like, depending on your state, you may be able to get ivermectin for like a dollar a dose or, or less in some cases. And, and so some people are paying like 70 to hundred bucks for three months worth of ivermectin compared to like 10 times more in, in some other pharmacies. So do, you know, people should do their homework. And, and at the end of the day, you can register on my website for free and talk to me for free and send messages back and forth for free. You know, you don't have to pull the trigger on paying for anything unless you actually want a prescription. So you can get free information from me. That's another benefit to registering with me. And then if you do want a prescription, if you've done your homework and you figure out that like, yeah, you guys are offering the, the best pharmacies and I'm willing to pay you, you know, in order to keep in touch with you in the future and, um, and to get your uh, prescription from you, they can go ahead and choose to pay. But like I said, there's really, there's not a, you know, a great reason not to get it just in case. And, and people who, you know, like, like they say, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. Like when somebody starts to get sick, oftentimes they're willing to try anything and they, and they wish they had gotten something earlier. Even the people who are like, you know, just rapidly against it, you know, before they get sick if they start seeing themselves getting worse and headed towards a hospital situation, I mean, I, I find it hard to imagine anyone would refuse ivermectin or fluvoxamine or something if they see themselves, you know, getting sicker and sicker. I mean, it's just, why not try something instead of nothing, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, people get desperate and then it's, it's a little too late. And so just being prepared always, I think is. First yeah. And you, you got to know that people have to know that, you know, I owe oh, time and again, 
we had people, especially during the Delta wave, when things just got crazy and we were just having like 10 times more patients than we had before and everyone was affected the same way. And so you have people coming to you desperate for drugs, right? And, and even if they come on day one, they're not going to get like through your process of registration and fill out all the forms and everything for at least a day. And then it's, and then they're going to get their prescription. And it's oftentimes for ivermectin, it's going to have to go out of state and they're going to have to mail it to you. And there's all these steps that have to, you know, fall into place. And you're just not going to get it quick enough, right? Like you need to get it now, right? As soon as you know you need it, you need it right away. You don't need it a few days later, right? Like with strokes, they say there's a saying like time is brain, you know, like if you don't get rid of that clot with a clot busting drug, you know, every second that goes by, you're losing brain cells, right? So with COVID, it's like that, you know, time is your life, right? Like every second that goes by with COVID that you don't start treating it, your, you know, your chances of surviving it without ending up in a hospital dead or with long COVID are diminishing, you know, so time is of the essence. Absolutely. I agree. And um, I've tried to speak with the MD and my free doctor. They are pretty challenging if you're not well-versed with a phone. So it might be better to reach out to Dr. Hader. It seems like his process is a little bit more seamless. I'm going to try it for my mother. So I'll report back to you guys. But again, speak with the MD, myfreedoctor.com are all legitimate. And it does take a while to get your meds. It's not an overnight turnaround. Uh, it could take anywhere from three to seven days. And again, like Dr. Hader said, time is of the essence. You want to have this already in your cabinet, ready to go. Day one of symptoms, you start treating. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us today. I would love to just talk with Dr. Hader for like three or four or five more hours about what he thinks about what's going on and everything, but we'll cut it short at the two hour mark. Hey everyone, Alicia here. Since the airing of this podcast episode, things have changed. As we all know with COVID, things change daily. At around one hour and 43 minutes, Dr. Hader said that if you sign out against medical advice, your insurance won't pay. He has since looked it up and realized this is a myth perpetuated by case managers in hospitals, which is used to convince patients they shouldn't leave. But actually, insurance doesn't care if you leave against medical advice or not. They pay for the care you received. Another thing to note is that at the time of recording, Omicron had not yet emerged. Omicron seems to be much more benign for the most part. Though, many still have a severe flu-like illness from it, but we don't yet know whether or not long COVID will be more or less of an issue after Omicron. So for now, it and any future variants should still be approached with caution till more is known. An ounce of prevention. At 1 hour and 51 minutes, Dr. Hader mentions India Mart Pharmacy. Since then, there have been some seizures at the border for overseas shipments, so people should be aware of that if ordering from overseas pharmacies and shipping times are at least three to four weeks long. At 1 hour and 52 minutes, Dr. Hader mentions that people pay $70 for ivermectin at the pharmacies they have vetted for 14 acute strength doses, which can be used for prevention over 14 weeks or acute treatment over 5 to 14 days. Now, the cost has gone up between $80 to $150 at the lowest cost pharmacies they can find. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate you tuning in. Again, thank you. Please go ahead and like, share, comment on our content. 
Also go ahead and check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to donate to keep this podcast going. And please check out our resources below in the show notes. We will have Dr. Hader's information as well as all the information for you to go ahead and pre-order your COVID meds and any other information that we discussed in this conversation today. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. 